Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White, joined today by Dr. Pendell, Dr. Lubers, Dr. Larson, Dr. Lancaster, and Dr. Borman. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We, we have a full house and happy to have Dr. Borman with us, who's a professor here at K-State, works in, in genetics, and she's going to share some information with us today. And really, as we got to talking a little bit before the show, we've got lots of great topics to talk about today that'll be very I think beneficial for you as a producer and working with herds when you're making genetic decisions. We're going to talk some about feed efficiency. We're going to talk about the influence of feet and legs in herd stability, as well as heat stress mitigation. And as we start thinking about those topics, before we get into that, uh, as if you know, if we're thinking about heat stress, we're also thinking about grilling or putting something on the smoker. So what's the what's some of you guys' favorite things to put on the smoker that may be, now I'm going to qualify it, that may be considered a little bit unusual? So any thoughts? Dustin, you're our, our resident smoker. I'm going to have to think about things. I mean, I've tried lots of things. I've smoked over the years. Um, I don't know what's weird. <laughs> Uh, You're hesitant to call anything you've smoked. I didn't say weird. I said different. That, that maybe not everybody smokes, right? Like you, if you answered brisket, everybody go, oh yeah, weird. yeah, yeah. Uh, cheese, cheese, I've had cheese, salt. Uh, I wouldn't even have thought to smoke salt, but I went into some little fancy spice store and they sell smoked salt for, and it's really expensive. And I thought I could do that. Yeah, you're right. That was weird. Uh, I do a lot of, uh, desserts on the smoker. Yeah. That sounds cool. I've actually had smoked salt before. It's actually quite good. I'm just giving you grief. Anybody else got anything unusual? Well, I, I haven't tried it, but I've heard and I'm planning to try soon smoked bologna. So it's a. Five like pound chub of bologna. Yeah, it's cross hatched and five pound chub of bologna and put it on the smoker. Wow. So I'll I'll give you a report in a future podcast, Brad. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So we're we're happy to be in grilling season and hopefully you're having some good grilling or smoking weather and enjoying that. because uh, it's that time of year. But we also wanted to talk some we always have questions related to genetics and the interplay and one of the things i'm interested to do today is we're going to talk some health nutrition economics and kind of the interplay with genetics and happy to have dr borman with us and i'll let you introduce yourself a little bit dr borman okay thanks brad uh my name is jenny borman i'm on faculty in the department of animal sciences and industry here at kansas state I've been here um, since 2004, um, did my graduate work at both Oklahoma State University and Iowa State University. Um, I primarily uh, teach our genetics and our animal breeding courses uh, for our undergrads as well as some graduate level courses and, and work in our research team um, in lots of different um, projects dealing with, with beef genetics in general and happy to be here today. Excellent. And we're glad to have you with us because some of these topics, as, as we've discussed, uh, and we'll jump in and, and start talking about feed efficiency, and I, and I think this is a, a common question that we get as far as genetic selection, 
because feed efficiency is so important relative to profitability. And when we think about on the fed cattle side, that can be a, a really big issue. And I know, Philip, you've had some questions relative to let's let's compare and contrast feed efficiency in fed cattle compared to my cow herd. Yeah, and so so the question is, are they, are they the same trait? Are we can if I'm selecting for say growing animals in a feedlot type situation, is that really transferable to cows out on pasture and, and improving the feed efficiency of my cow herd? Yeah, and so there could be two different factors when you have a concentrate-based diet compared to a grass-based diet. But, but Dustin, we know these things all influence profitability. Right. Uh, actually, I've got more questions. I want to ask a couple of quick questions, and I want to then that will tie hopefully into the profitability. So, for somebody, does feed efficient? How does feed efficiency? Does it impacted or? Is there a correlation between that and average daily gain? Well, certainly, depending on how you define feed efficiency, right? If it's sort of the classic feed conversion ratio, pounds of feed divided by pounds of gain, then your faster gaining animals are going to be more efficient. Um, but there's alternate uh, definitions of feed efficiency. Uh, you know, we've heard a ton about RFI in the last decade, residual feed intake. And that is supposed to be independent of gain. So it finds the cattle that eat less at the same gain. Um, there's some problems with that definition as well. So it, it really just depends on what you're using to define efficiency. But so, but so if you use the residual feed intake and you're trying to find cattle that eat less but gain the same amount, is that a trait we want for cows? to eat less because we're not really we, most times we don't want them necessarily to gain now there are times years we do but do we want cows to eat less well and that's a great question and why it's probably a different trait because you just said it cows aren't gaining like we expect feedlot cattle to do their production is measured in in gestation and lactation and maintaining body condition and those are a lot harder things to sort of get your your arms around rather than simply average daily gain in the feedlot well let me let me ask a question so and i, and I agree with you your, your statement there so is gain in the in a growing animal related to their lactation potential as a as a cow so if i'm selecting for growing animals that are that are eating less for the same gain is that same animal going to be eating less for the same milk production that's a good question. I don't think we know. It, you know, it would have something to do with are we, are we measuring the efficiency of growth or the, the maintenance efficiency of those animals? And I don't think we really know that. And Dustin, you started to ask another question too. I well, I've just had lots of questions about this whole, I'm just trying to understand the, this concept, thinking cows versus feeder cat. Is it just because of the size? Is it the breed? I mean, I assume a whole bunch of things, probably in the environment. I mean, a whole bunch of these things impact this feed efficiency? Yeah, I think obviously diet is one, forage-based versus concentrate-based. Um, but then, like we just said, production is different. We define production very differently physiologically, growth versus gestation lactation. Um, and I think, you know, from a geneticist's point of view, really the holy grail that we don't have yet is how do we measure intake on cows on pasture? Until we can measure it, we can't select for it. 
And there's some pretty cool new technology out there that people are starting to work with to maybe to, to get a proxy at least or, or an estimate of the amount of, of grass that, that a cow is eating. Um, but until we get that on a large number of animals, it's going to be really difficult to answer that question. So, Brad, to answer your original question that you posed to me, uh, thinking about the profitability, well, with feed costs being, what, 60, 70 percent of the production costs, that's why I think the feed efficiency is so important, especially now when we're talking, you know, extremely high feed prices. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, but I think one of the points that's coming up in our discussion here is the way I posed it and the way I've had it posed to me, I just said feed efficiency. Like there's a magic variable out there that tells us exactly what that would mean. And there's not, there's several variables that we can look at. And in the feed yard, you may say, oh yeah, well, I know exactly what feed efficiency is. It's pounds of feed to pounds of gain, right? I can, I can measure that, but I can't really measure that on an individual animal level. I measure that on a pin or a group level. And one of the things we know from some of the technologies that are out there is it's not the same among animals, is it? No, no not at all. There's a huge difference in the amount of, of feed consumed by animals gaining roughly the same amount of weight. Yeah. And, and I think, Philip, that's led to, to some of your questions there, too, is even if we look in that area, how do, how do how much of a role do genetics play in changing that process? And what are they what are they actually changing? So if we wanted to if I modified and let's say now now let me just think about feeder cattle and feed efficiency and I'm going to try to make feed efficiency better. Philip, what do you think we're what do you think we're changing? Well, it depends on on how we're measuring things. It, it's let's so if we we think about what that animal is doing, if, if we're, we're when we're measuring the amount of feed and then we're measuring the amount of gain there's a lot of steps in the middle when that animal when that animal converts feed to body weight gain and so are we improving the digestibility uh, the animal's ability to digest that feed are we reducing the amount of methane gas that's lost during the digestion of that feed and and one of the things that, that i've kind of been thinking about recently are we improving what we call the efficiency of energy use? So once that feed is digested and we have the, the nutrients that are absorbed, is the animal using those nutrients more efficiently for maintenance and gain um, or, or not? And so um, there's a lot of steps there when we're just measuring the, the feed in and the weight out that, that are we changing those and are we changing them consistently? Well, I would circle back to sort of the big picture and I'm going to date myself a little bit, but when I was in school, we were taught seven to one, right? It's seven pounds of feed to make a pound of beef. Um, but we're significantly better than that now on, on a national average, but we haven't made that progress. I don't think by, by decreasing feed intake, but we've made tremendous progress in selecting for growth. And so if we make that, that growth number a lot bigger, that makes that feed efficiency number a lot bigger. Um, but we really haven't selected on decreasing the intake 
much. There's been a, a, an improvement, right? We have more and more facilities available to test cattle. Um, but certainly most of the improvement we've seen in that sort of overall industry-wide feed efficiency has been on the growth side. And, and, and that comes back to some of our basic nutrition concepts. And we've mentioned that before, that every day I have to contribute so much calories, protein to maintenance. Uh, if I grow faster every day than I have before, that other feed that I use can be more efficient because I have less days of maintenance if I look over that entire period. And, and I think that ties into, as we think looking long term, that ties right into our next topic, which is we wanted to talk about um, feet and legs. And I know you've done some research in this area, Jenny, and, and feet and legs and relative to herd stability. And before we get into your research, I, I, I want to ask kind of Bob and Brian, what what do you guys think about feet and legs in a commercial cow-calf herd? What's some of the things that pop to your head about the importance of that for health of the animals? When I look at feet and legs for cow herds, I, I, I can remember instances where, you know, you end up calling a cow because she kind of broke down, you know, and it, and it might be, it might be a, a corkscrew claw or something like that, or it could be, you know, kind of straight hawked or something like that. And so I can remember those individual cows that we called or I, or I helped call because of feet and leg issues. But I'm going to show my bias. And my bias is I like getting cows pregnant. And I think that's the most important thing. And I've, I've called, I don't know, a hundred times more cows for being open than I've called for having uh, a lameness issue, feet and leg issue. So although I, I, I I remember doing it. I've called so many more open cows that I, I, I sometimes I, I hesitate to think how important it is, unless it's unless I really make a mistake and now I'm dealing with a lot of foot and leg issues on a herd. Most herds, I don't know that it's a big deal. Not I mean, and and again because I I'm more thinking about repro. All right, all right. So I'll take the other view. So I, <laughs> Bob thinks that cows are just uteruses walking around in the pasture. Yeah, yeah they are. So, but, and I agree with him. I think those kind of, if we're talking about genetics and those, the genetic issues that when we talk about feet and legs, those are, those are rare things, right? We don't, we see the occasional one here, there, but I think overall the importance of feet and legs is really a big deal, right? And so, and, and maybe as veterinarians, we, haven't seen it as much because, you know, most producers, if they see a corkscrew claw, they may call it on their own. We never see it. So it may be more common than we even realize. So, but I think about, you know, infectious disease like foot rot is a huge issue and can cause a whole myriad of follow-up problems. And although it's not a genetic feet and leg issue, I think it talks to the importance of feet and legs as far as cows staying in the herd. So there's my counterpoint. Yeah, I, I think both those are are valid. Jenny, what did your what did your research show? I know you did some research on this topic yeah, and specifically so, looking at stability. Right, and so the impetus of the project, and this was um, Bob Weber and myself and some graduate students um, several years ago. The impetus was just sort of anecdotally, more and more producers were talking about maybe more on the bull side, um, just bulls breaking down and not lasting very long. Um, and, and more, more incidents of things like corkscrew claw, and, and maybe we need to do something about that. So it's just sort of starting to hear that more and more. 
And, and, you know, I'm with Bob that I don't care why necessarily the cow stays in the herd, but she needs to stay in the herd. Um, that, that's what makes her profitable. And so what we wanted to do was try to figure out, is there anything we can measure on a young animal structure wise that might predict how long she's able to stay in that herd? You know, are we culling these animals at some level for uh, structural problems? And so um, it, basically the preliminary analysis, it shows some, some weak relationships, uh, especially things like claw, uh, claw shape, um, angle, foot angle. And sort of while we were sort of in the middle of the data collection on this project, um, American Angus has come out with, with data collection procedures and they're now calculating EPDs on the, these things, foot shape, claw shape. Um, to, to try to address that concern that, that why do we have some cattle that just aren't lasting a long time in the herd? Um, and so, you know, it's ongoing. It takes a lot of data, and we're going to keep collecting those data. The breed associations are going to keep collecting those data, again, to try to figure out on those young cattle which ones are, are, the, are most likely to have high stability and stay in the herd a long time. Oh, one, one thing. Sorry. I was just going to say one of the challenges is we, we think of this trait kind of as an intermediate optimum, right? You want them sort of average. You don't want them really extreme one way or really extreme the other way. And, and that makes it a little challenging as well. Oh, I like that phrase, intermediate optimum. So you, there's a lot of things that that applies to where that's really what you're searching for is the intermediate optimum. Well, I was going to say something that, that Dr. Borman said that is like, ah, I'm sorry. I said something dumb in that I was thinking of culling cows and I don't, and I'm going to stick with my idea that I don't cull very many cows for foot and leg problems, but boy, bulls, that's one of the most common reasons that we call bulls, bulls that otherwise would still be fertile. Uh, and so you kind of caught me with a, I didn't think of that. <laughs> um, so when I, when I think foot and legs, gosh, bulls, that rise is really important to me. And of course, when I'm making genetic selections by and large, I'm selecting for both males and females at the same time. And so I just kind of, I, I wasn't that excited about it before. And now I'm getting more excited because that is a reason I cull bulls. And uh, so I think it is probably pretty important at least to uh, avoid the problems or hit that optimum. Uh, I, I, I do want to avoid those kind of problems. Okay. So I've got a, I've got a question for you guys and, and it came up in several areas and this is in the feet and legs field. Uh, several of you mentioned corkscrew, claws as an example of a reason that you might want to call a bull or a cow and a corkscrew claw if you have one of the claws instead of the bottom part being on the ground like it should it turns like a corkscrew and sometimes the toe will will turn around and they'll actually be walking on the side of the hoof depending on the severity is that hereditary and let me ask a better question not just is it hereditary should I call offspring from that animal, whether it's a bull or a cow, and not keep them in my herd because they're likely also to have a corkscrew claw? So once I discover it, should I get rid of the offspring from that animal? Larson, oh, you used it as an example. so Yeah, okay. Well, I am glad we have a geneticist on the call because <laughs> I'm going to punt to her. Uh, because this is an interesting thing because uh, I love being old. Uh, because there, there's answers that have been changed, and sometimes they've even come back around to what I was taught originally. But I was taught that it has a strong genetic component. But then I've, I've watched the literature over my career, and that that has really been backed down. I don't 
I don't think the genetists think it has a strong genetic component. They think that environment and some other issues are probably way more important. But I don't know that they're saying it's no genetic component. So so if I was a purebred producer, I might treat a cow with corkscrew claw as far as keeping offspring from her differently than I would a commercial herd. But I'll just say that, and then I'll let Dr. Borman correct me or get me back on track. No, I mean, I don't think you're wrong at all. I think, um, and I'll punt a little bit and say we don't know, really, because you can't figure out if something's genetic until you have a lot of data. And they're really, I mean, think about it. We haven't been recording and reporting that to any sort of, you know, central association to be able to really track that. Um, You know, I I think there probably, uh, almost certainly there's a genetic component, but whether it's, you know, 10% or 40%, I don't think we know. And we just don't have the data yet. So, so probably no rash decisions on culling all the offspring, but you, you may want to consider that in your herd, what makes sense for you. So, but that, those animals, that, that is something to, to think about. And we don't know everything about genetics, but we are learning more and more. One of the other topics that we wanted to visit with you about was uh, we had a conversation a few weeks ago relative to heat stress and hair coat. And if you want to go back and listen to that episode, you can find it. It was based on a listener question. And we discussed how that could be uh, an important factor on some operations and may not matter as much to others. And we know there are some, some genetic links there. But I want to talk heat stress kind of in general. And as we think about some of those heat stress mitigation techniques and Brian, I'll, I'll ask you to maybe kick us off with what are, what are some of the things that you see as either signs of heat stress or, or indications that we need to do something to mitigate that problem? Yeah, so, um, and it depends, so I'll start with it depends on where you're at or in which industry you're in. So, uh, you know, I have a lot of dairy background, and so heat stress in dairy looks different than it does in cow-calf. Um, and different than it does in feed yard. But I would say, you know, across all of those, the one shared thing that you will see uh, is decreased production. So however you're measuring that in dairy versus cow-calf versus feedlot, uh, you will see decreased production. Uh, If we're talking, you know, cow-calf, you know, the obvious signs that when we start to see clinical heat stress, so animals um, that are we're now past the just production loss and subclinical disease. Uh, you, you know, you start to see things that can look like respiratory disease because the you know one of the methods that cattle use to cool themselves is breathing, and so you'll see uh, increased breathing rates. Uh, like I said, it, it may even look like early signs of respiratory disease. Um, other than that, it's you know it's a pretty subtle disease to detect, Brad. So not, that's those are the things you look for. Yeah, and a lot of times it could be really what we would say is subclinical. You may not see, if you see one calf that's breathing hard, there are likely another set of calves that are suffering heat stress, but not to that degree as that, as that one. So, and, and I know there's, there's been some work done. I mentioned hair, hair coat at, at the top and Dr. Mormon, you, you've seen some work done in that area. Uh, yeah, there was some been some work from North Carolina State University and University of Missouri where basically they just 
score cattle at the same time in the spring, all the cows in the herd for how well they've shed out and showed some pretty significant differences in, for example, calf weaning weight. Cows that shed out faster have higher weaning weights on their calves, um, sort of as a proxy of production. Um, and maybe some reproductive differences as well. So um, just the theory being those cows that are able to shed out good in the spring suffer less heat stress than during the summer months. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that could be due to increased milk production. Is that what you're thinking? If they're, if, yeah. Yep. So how, how does that apply to what we want to do on to manage heat stress? And Philip or Bob, you either one of you guys may have some thoughts in that area. Like, and what comes to mind is a, is a couple of different ways to, to manage heat stress or a couple of things we can do is, one, make sure we've got extra water available uh, during that time. And, and um, uh, so what may normally be enough water will not be able to keep up with cattle uh, when they're experiencing heat stress. And so providing extra water sources, um, especially if it's a uh, uh, water dry drinker or you know a ball fountain one of those types of things um and then uh shade making sure cattle have access to to shade um you know best best shade is, is a shade tree out on the pasture um it it it's better than, than any kind of artificial shades that are out there um and then <clears throat> but then um artificial shades are better than nothing you know, do some reading and, and some thinking and planning if you're going to build some artificial shades. Um, because one big thing is making sure that you've got enough shade per animal and that you've got enough um, airflow moving underneath of that shade structure. Um, because if they don't have airflow moving underneath of that shade structure, then it's not doing a whole lot of good. Which is the thing you said, and I'm going to pick up on, Philip, because... Uh, where where we live, the way you said it, you said the best thing is a shade tree in the pasture. If you have a shade tree, which some of our pastures do, they have the one, uh, you run into some of the same issues that you just described with an artificial shade. A group of 30 cows sitting under a tree are not all that much cooler than they would be if they just spread out and not lay right next to each other. And if Larson was there, he would probably cut down said shade tree yeah 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 it's just taking up grass so <laughs> and some so some of the things to think about are some and we mentioned this earlier about how different parts of the country react you know i i worked for a while where we had a lot of fescue and so fescue is its own animal when it comes down to heat stress uh, much more concerned about uh cattle uh, consuming fescue having some heat stress issues and then you know how how far uh what's the latitude that we're talking about uh, the farther south you go you got heat and humidity uh wind speed so all the things that that impact whether you're comfortable or not on a summer day also affect the cattle so uh less humidity a higher wind speed can offset a fairly high air temperature and so any combination of those things are things to consider and then also the kind of the age and stage of the animal. I've seen the biggest heat stress issues in the practices I was in, in young, young calves. So sometimes these were calves born, you know, kind of in, into the early part of the summer and their older herd mates did not appear to be as affected as the brand new babies. And then the other one we run into is if, you know, if, especially if 
you've synchronized a group of heifers or cows and you're trying to breed all on the same day and it turns out to be blazing hot. In my hands, that often means we're not going to have as much success as other times. And, and you can work really hard. Make sure they have water. You know, try to, you know, do all your work in the coolest part of the day and those types of things. But, you know, so breeding and, and, and I'll also, so in natural service, I think the males are affected as well. Um, and a lot of times we don't see that I don't see that in a commercial herd that's not synchronized because the really hot days that would affect cattle reproduction aren't every day. It's an occasional day. And because cows are all spread out over the breeding season, it doesn't come up and really hit me as a really negative impact on overall breed up, but it certainly affects some cows on some days. Uh, and if that happens to be a synchronization day, then, then I can get into some trouble. So uh, I'm not, it, yeah, heat stress is what, and the problem is my, my tools to deal with it, other than making sure we have plenty of water and shade appropriate for the latitude and altitude and everything where, you're, where your ranch is, those are the only tools I've got. So I use them the best I can, and then you kind of just take what you get. Absolutely. Yeah, I love it. And, oh, and go I, ahead. And one thing too, to think about, you know, we talked about daytime high and wind speed and all those things. And I agree with Bob and Philip, there's not a lot you can do to management, but as far as being vigilant for heat stress, it's actually the nighttime temperatures that are really important. And so uh, when you get hot days that don't cool down at night, it doesn't allow cattle to dissipate heat. And so if I'm watching for heat stress, though, that's actually what I'm where I'm going to start increasing my vigilance for looking for it in a herd is, is not necessarily the daytime high, but the nighttime low that can be a huge factor. Great, great point, Brian. And I, and I think you're right. It's that nighttime cooling that really makes the difference and helps mitigate it. So great discussion. And we appreciate having Dr. Borman on with us. We did not get to everything on our list. So we'll, we'll have to have her back at some point in the near future. But we had really good discussions there relative to some of these topics that affect you and your operation. And a lot of them are based on questions that we've received in the past, but we're happy to answer any of your specific questions. If you have anything that you'd like us to talk about it or include on the show or find an expert to, to discuss with, you can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.